The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to Wizards, the video podcast guide to comics. And welcome back to part two of our Fantastic Four special for the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie that doesn't exist. This week we're going to be covering a little bit more of the fun stuff about the movie, as well as the documentary with Steven and I talking all things Fantastic Four and sharing a little cool information and facts about the movie, the making of the film, and why it ultimately imploded and never happened. Check it out. Stay tuned. More to come. Not only did this legend grow for you, but this legend grew like in the, you know, ethers of comicdom and, you know, and, and like fandom, right? And it's, you know, in the same year the Fantastic Four cartoon debuted and in 94 uh you'd get what's called a big effing year for the team oh, yeah sorry yeah so, so i can sum that up what i was trying to say so sure. 1994 was supposed to see the release of this movie and later on that year was supposed to see the release of the fantastic four cartoon which you were right. talking about right so that was going to be the year of the fantastic four right and it just did not materialize wow now you know so in regards to the bootlegs so ole Sesson. Uh, he he claims that he brought the movie to a dubbing house to make a, make a copy of it or something like that, and he believes that somebody you know was like, "Holy cow, I gotta copy this movie and made a bootleg, and that's how it all you know materialized." And I, I mean, the way he tells the story in the documentary makes a lot of sense because you know this is one of those things where anytime you, you have a movie that's top secret or, you know, highly significant, there's always somebody trying to get a bootleg copy of it. And if they had to do all this stuff on their own dime and he had to bring it to a third party dubbing house to make this copy, it makes perfect sense. Let me ask you this, because uh, this is something I've, I've thought about a lot in my, in my Fantastic Four loving brain. Did you believe Ole's story? Did you believe that he brought it to a dubbing house and the guy there saw it and he swiped the copy? Or do you think Ole did it himself? I had questions. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I think it's somewhere in the middle. Like, I think he knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And in order to not get caught, maybe he did it that way. That's like, fair. You know, he might have brought the film and said, hey, listen, I'm giving you this. You never saw me. You don't know me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, started, you know, the ripple from there is what I think really happened. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's possible because the other piece of evidence that I, <laughs> again, I'm like a Fantastic Four. Detective. Movie. Yeah, detective. <laughs> So the people who made the documentary Doomed, if you watch those clips, they're working off a higher source than any of the bootleg stuff that you've seen. Yeah. So I have to imagine they got that from somewhere else. And they also sell, which is what I bought it, they sell a Blu-ray on their website. Really? Yes. Is I the, mean, it's not, the, not Blu-ray it, quality. But, but it's, it's better than what I saw on the internet. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not sure where they got that from but they got they, it from somewhere. They got it from somewhere, folks. Interesting. So, because when I, I mean, when I eventually did find this movie, it was like a, a copy of a copy of a copy. It looked yeah. crappy as can be. So, a better version's out there now. So, do you have 
a Roger Corman story about all this? Oh, yes, I do. So in the summer of 2004, I went to a horror convention in New Jersey, specifically because Roger Corman was a guest. And I brought my Fantastic Four poster for him to sign. But at some point, someone did ask him about the movie and, and what's going on with it. It was a year before the um, Tim Story Fantastic Four movie came out. Right. Um, with, you know, with Jessica Alba and Chris Evans. Mm. And someone asked him about his Fantastic Four. And he said that he had just spoken to Bert Eichinger. And that Bert Eichinger was planning to release the Corman Fantastic Four as a bonus disc on the new movie's DVD. I've heard that. I, I, I've heard something like that recently. Okay. I, where, do you know where you heard that or just somewhere? Somewhere. I, I don't know. I've, I've heard it through maybe some of our people, our guests on the show or maybe Adam. I think I've also, they, they kind of even teased it in the documentary where they said, wouldn't it be great if it was, you know, a bonus on the DVD for the new movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. They did talk about that. Uh, and so that, you know, when I heard that, it kind of led me to believe that there might be an actual copy out there somewhere. If Bert Eichinger is saying it. I'm, I believe there probably is a, a real legit can of it somewhere. The finished cut. What, what I wouldn't give to get my hands on that can. Just, I mean... I don't want to go into, I mean, the visual effects are not great, but if, but if you could take the footage like clean and raw and then do real VFX on it, it would look something really interesting, I think, in my opinion. It's, you know, like, you know, the 1990 Captain America movie eventually got a Blu-ray release. Yeah. You know, guys like you and I had only seen it on VHS. Yeah. When it was cleaned up, you know, it's it's really interesting to see it that way. Yeah. Um, it's an artifact. It's kind of a blueprint for what the Marvel movies could be. And it's really not fair that the only copies of this movie are these really, you know, copy of a copy, DVD, YouTube. Pretty dirty, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, you want to see what they were trying to do. You you want to see where this fits into the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe canon, and and the only way you can do that is by having a decent copy of it. Yeah. So, what is this surge of power I heard about? This is an Adam thing. Adam asked us to talk about it because he oh, reviewed God. it. On, <laughs> of course, I think on the Retro Network. It's a movie. So in 2016, there was a movie called Surge of Power: Revenge of the Sequel, which Adam. Uh, your co-host on the Wizard Podcast reviewed, and it reunites many of the cast members of Fantastic Four. Does it uh, really? Yes, including Rebecca Stab, Alex Hyde White. No kidding. Uh, yeah. Um, well, where's everybody else? Rebecca Stab. There's this, there's like a hundred thousand people in this cast. Oh, Rebecca Stab, Alex Hyde White, Joseph Culp. Uh, it's also got Eric Allen Kramer, who played Thor. In Incredible Hulk Returns, Rex Smith, who played Daredevil, so it's like like that, like that film forty seven for like B comic book movies. Yes, uh, <laughs> Carl Chiarafalo's in it, Jay Underwood's in it, Lou Ferrigno, they got oh, him. Wow, that's Jack crazy. Larson, Noel Neal. So yeah, so if if that's your bag, I I would watch that just for the hell of it. Yeah, Lair, Red Brown, who who was the first Captain America. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah. So, so we, we've mentioned several times about this documentary, right? It's called Doomed. If you have Amazon Prime, which if you are living in this pandemic world, you have Amazon Prime because <laughs> it's the only way to get anything these days. It on sure time. is. Um, it's really well produced. I mean, like, it's beautiful. It's, it's shot really well. It's lit magnificently. Like, I love the way they did lighting in this thing. Um, it's, it's cut, most of it is cut together really, really well, except for the very end. So they have like snippets at the end where they're interviewing the cast and they're kind of giving their final thoughts and they cut, they kind of do like, like a cut to white and back real quick to the same person as opposed to jumping to a different 
person. And that's a little jarring if you know anything about editing, but if you don't and you don't care, like most people wouldn't care, it's a really, really well done piece of documentary cinema. I, I highly recommend it. I didn't know it existed until Steven told me. And it's, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> it's almost, I mean, I think it's actually more interesting than the movie itself because you learn a lot of nuances of the way the film was made and, and some of the drama that went behind it. Like they were going to comic cons and promoting this thing and touring all over the country. And, you know, they were amped for this movie. And then all of a sudden it just gets ripped from out from under them. And it's, it's very, very interesting. What's your thoughts on this documentary? I, I love this documentary. You know, every now and again, you see a movie and you think, this movie was made for specifically me. And that's the case with this movie. Um, when I was, you know, when I was waiting for the Fantastic Four movie to come out, I was printing out like eight by tens of the cast. I was blowing up photos from Wizard Magazine to giant sizes and hang them up on my wall. So I knew all these actors. I can see you going to like CVS and be like, I need you to scan this for me and blow it up as yeah. big as you can get it. Well, it's a low-res magazine picture. You might get an 8 by 10 out of it, kid. <laughs> I was like, enhance, enhance. Yeah, because you, know, you had to keep enlarging it and enlarging it and enlarging it, and it was black and white. It was the best I could do under my circumstances. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But just to see, to see Alex Hyde White, to see Rebecca Stab, Jay Underwood, these people that I knew because I was obsessed with the movie that never came out, and hear them talk about it, it was and so they got exciting. all of them. They've got, they got everybody. all of them. Like, even, here's the interesting thing about this documentary. So, in the beginning, we see Roger Corman talk about the movie. Yes. And then... About halfway, he's gone. Yes. Like, they got a couple of sound bites out of him, and that's it. And they couldn't get any more out of him, is what it felt like. They talk about this in Mark Le, Sykes' The Dune. Book. <laughs> Basically, Corman was not happy with this movie. He came to the premiere and walked out, I think, 15 or 20 minutes in. Really? Pissed off. Uh, was not happy with it. And they said he... He had basically, you know, Corman's produced thousands of movies at this point in his life. Yeah. He doesn't remember every detail of every movie. So he has folders that give him all these kind of talking points. Mm -hmm. And if you read any inter interview with Roger Corman, when he talks about this movie, it's basically all the same talking points. Yeah. So it's I, like three I sentences. As, yeah. I don't think he's as, um, I don't think he was as hands on with this as other things. I think it was just, you know, his friend came to him. He had an opportunity to make some money. He thought it was an interesting project. He did it. And, and that was basically his involvement. But they, they paint him in this movie as it, as it goes on between him and Avi Arad as like Lex Luthor and, you know, Dr. Doom, essentially. You know, yes. it's, it's, it's like, you know, they basically say without spoilers that things happened where Corman killed the movie over money, essentially. Yes, and, and uh, they talk about how Corman got a check for a million dollars that he was bragging about to basically kill the movie. You know, it's, it's tough. You know, we've, we've worked in the industry. I think everyone gets their hopes up about projects and they, and they just see them collapse. I've had it's, a very, it's very sad. It's very sad what happened to this cast. Um, who thought this was like their big break? Yeah, this was. They thought this was going to be it. Like this was going to the director on down. Everyone was like, "This is our shot. Like this is going to be what's going to make our careers to go to the next level, big time." Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think realistically, and this is just my opinion, it would have probably had the same uh, level of success as a Punisher or Captain America. I don't think it would have gone much further. Maybe the fact that it wasn't released is why it's so well-known and legendary. They say that in the documentary. They, they, they actually say at one point, I forget who says it, but they're like, I wonder if this movie actually got released 
if it would have been seen as by as many people as it has because it wasn't. Yeah, I mean that that's a really fair point about it because I think the big talking point about this movie. I think for years the big talking point about this movie was it was so bad that they didn't even release it. And but again, like it's not bad. It's not a yes. bad movie. And I think the narrative changed. I think in large part due to that documentary, which is fantastic and which you should seek out. And not to not to humble brag, but I am the top comment on the Amazon Prime page for it. Really? Top review. <laughs> I'll have to find a screen grab of that. And again, even even the director Ole Sassoon commented on my review and said, Did he "Really? Yeah. yeah." Did he really? It was neat. It was neat to see the director of the Fantastic Four uh, comment. Um, so. But but yeah, I think the narrative forever was this was so bad that that they couldn't even release it, which is not the case. And I think. Thanks to the documentary, people are starting to say, hey, you know what? That was pretty good. It's and the other big thing that happened was they released three of the worst darn, I can't swear on this podcast, three of the worst. Yeah, but I, can, I can bleep it if you want. <laughs> three of the <laughs> Fantastic Four movies in the history of time. I hate those movies. So, okay. Let's talk about the legacy of Fantastic Four, all right? Yes. So, okay. Um, we both agree Fantastic Four 2015, or or some call it Fan Four Stick, is <laughs> a complete garbage pile of a movie, which has great actors in it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, there's a really terrific cast, and they just took a dump on it essentially, and yes. and all the actors do a good job with what they had to work with, but. This was one of those cases where it was destroyed by the producers and the lawyers and whatever. And again... And the director. And the, well, well, they say there's another version of this movie. There's another version of it. <laughs> again. You, the, yeah. So the director was a guy named Josh Trank who was coming yeah. off... Uh, what was the name of that superhero movie? Chronicle. Chronicle, yes. Uh, Which I like Chronicle. Chronicle's good. I never watched it. It, does, it didn't seem like it was for me. I like my superheroes to be squeaky clean and good. I don't need them to be <laughs> jerks. <laughs> but basically, uh, you know, he, he was running high off Chronicle. He had his pick of projects. He chose to do the Fantastic Four and then complained the entire time, hated the characters. Like, the writer was saying how he was trying to base it on Avengers, which was a hit, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Josh Trank hated the Avengers and just kept trying to you know, make it what it wasn't the entire time, which to me, I'm like, if you have your choice of projects, why choose something you hate and make it crappy? Why gotta not choose that, something you like? Gotta get that paper. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that movie is, I mean, talk about legendarily bad. It was just... Well, they say that, that Kate Mara, who plays Invisible Woman, had a lot of problems with the director. Like, there was a lot of problems with him and her together like they just did not jive at all yes Um, he was abusive towards her according to her like not physically but just like you know just deliver demeanor and and just yeah the whole thing um so we now there's the other fantastic four movies plural with which as you mentioned with chris evans and jessica alba and um, the guy from Nip Tuck who plays Doctor Doom, Julian McMahon, yes, and uh, Michael Chiklis as the Thing, and I was, what what is the guy who plays Fantastic? Four? It's like Yo- Johan Griffith. Yes, yeah, it's it's so, got a weird pronunciation. Yeah, so okay, we know how you stand on this movie, those <laughs> movies. I don't hate them. Okay, I'll be okay. I'll be honest. There are elements of both of those movies that are good. Okay, I, I, I'm going to amend what I said a little bit. I don't hate the first one. I think it's mediocre. Right. Other it has than, its moments. Other than Galactus being a cloud, which is awful. That was the second one of those. Oh, that was the second re- one? Oh, that was okay. this Revenge of the... Or, or Rise oh, of the Silver Server. Yeah. Uh, uh, first one is when Doom is... Oh, yeah, and they like, they like do that... 360 around him, whatever, yeah. and get him, uh, yeah. And then I kind of melt him. Um, it's, it's very of the time. Very of the time. Uh, it's, they're not, they're not awful, awful movies. They're not great movies. I, I don't 
know if Jessica Alba was the right cast for Sue Storm. She and um, Johan have zero chemistry. Zero. Zero. And it's so obvious and it just, it's, it's hard to watch at times. Um, Chris Evans, pre-Captain America, plays a pretty darn good Johnny Storm, in my opinion. He's fine. He's, he's fine. He's you saddled know. with like, he, well, this is kind of interesting. They, they kind of wrote him as if he was Chris O'Donnell as Robin in the Batman Forever, Batman and Robin kind of thing. Yeah. Well, he's, <laughs> he, he's saddled with like all these things where Johnny is just like a cocky jerk who's mm-hmm. unlikable. Yeah. Not like a fun, silly, hothead yeah. guy that you'd be friends with. He's just like a cocky. Arrogant. Yeah. Jock. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you don't get the sense in that movie that they even like each other, the four yeah. of them. Yeah. They, they, they don't come off as if they like each other or that they are a family, which is essentially what the Fantastic Four is, is a family. Yes. I, I was excited for that when it came out. I, I don't know if you went to this, but in, in the city at the time, they had like a cast signing where they signed. Okay. I, didn't go. They, I, I, I did see the movie in the city, but I didn't go okay. to any cast signing, no. Um, yeah, some comic shop did it. I forget which one, but maybe Forbidden Planet or something. It was a big deal at the time. Sounds about right. Yeah, I waited I mean, in line for like three hours or something crazy. Did you get their autographs? So they, had, they advertised it as, you know, you can meet the five main cast members. Mm-hmm. And then you get there. And there's like a rotation of them. Oh, wow. And Jessica Alba left within the first five minutes. And so I met Chris Evans and Michael Chiklis. And they that's kind of cool, though. That was cool. That's pretty cool. I, mean, I was excited. I mean, I, I love Michael Chiklis as an actor. I, I mean, yeah. The Shield is a great show. The Commission is a great show. Um, the problem with this, they didn't give the thing any respect in his movies at all. No, no. At all. No. Um, and, yeah, and as we mentioned, that makeup just did him no favors. Not good. It's not good. Um, I do think the CGI of Mr. Fantastic is very good in those movies. Mm-hmm. I, I do really like it. Um, beyond that, it's, you know, there's a lot of cheesy jokes in it that annoy me. Like, I, I know the Marvel movies, like the, the MCU, are synonymous for, you know, oh, you have to have a joke every five minutes or it's not mm-hmm. a Marvel movie. But this one, they, there's just, they're trying too hard to put jokes in the movies. Yes. In, in addition to, like, the, you know, ooh, we have Jessica Alba. Let's get her where she's nude and she goes invisible. Like, that kind of stuff turns me off. And I'm just like, I, I, don't, I don't have energy for that kind of stuff, even then. Yeah. That's not who it, Sue Storm is. It was something that I was both excited to see the movie, you know, those characters come to life. Uh, and I even paid to see Electra just so I could see the teaser trailer for Fantastic Four, which was, you know, I'd sit through Electra then after yeah. that. That was my prize. Um, You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, I was excited for it. I think I, like at the time, I, I both liked it and I did not like it because I yeah. was like, it's, my, it's the characters I love. I get to see them brought to life, but it was not fully realized and i think that's when i started to come back around on the corman fantastic four had this movie come out would it have been as legendary as it is now do you think you know we kind of talked about this a little bit but i think not i think it would have just ended up like the punisher and all those other things and kind of fizzled out. i think because of the documentary and this book that I'm now learning about this evening and everything else, it's become more of a cult following. Yeah. I mean, like, like we touched on, I think the legend around this movie is bigger than the movie. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's, what's most interesting about it. Like, you know, you hadn't even seen it and a lot of people haven't seen it, Um, but they know about it because they know that there was a fantastic four movie that was just never released. And I think that is what sticks in people's minds. And like I said, I think now people are starting to come around to it a little bit and appreciate it a little bit more. So, um, how did you get this Blu-ray? <laughs> this Blu-ray? Yeah, like, how? <laughs> so, okay. And also I have this blue like DVD. <laughs> so I have 
<laughs> and I had a VHS copy, which is how I first saw it. But someone borrowed it in college and never gave it back to me. Did you like hang them outside of Hofstra's window till you could find it? <laughs> I went full Kill Bill on the whole dorm with the. With the <laughs> I, I had an issue with that in college too, where like I had all of my DVDs in a trunk under my bed, and some of my like sweet mates borrowed some of them, and I never got them back, and. It took me years to like repurchase certain movies that I had lost because yeah. of college roommates. The, the worst is when you confront someone and be like, hey, you borrowed my, uh, Where's my movie? such and such DVD. I didn't yeah. borrow that. I, I don't have, I don't, no. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, but, so anyway, just to quickly hit on this. So when I finally saw this movie, it was 1998. I was at Amok Time, which is a comic book store on Long Island. Yeah. Uh, I was walking around, looking at stuff. All of a sudden, on a shelf, I see the Fantastic Four movie on VHS. Of course, I wasn't they looking had it. for it. Of course, they had it. It was just there, and it was <laughs> the seven- unicorn. I know. It was seventeen dollars. <laughs> I look in my pocket. I had seventeen dollars exactly. I was like, this could not have been. No comics before. this week for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So that's how I first saw it, and 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 it was a really worn out copy of a copy, and. I was still very excited to finally get my hands on it after four years of waiting. Uh, it was an epic journey. But so the, the way I got this Blu-ray is if you go to um, the filmmakers who made the Doomed movie, mm-hmm. they have a website. I think it's Doomed at Big or Doomed at Big Film Cartel or something like that. I can look it up later. Mm-hmm. And they sell this. This is nine bucks. It's a it's a Blu-ray of the movie. It has nine bucks. Wow, that's $9. pretty cheap. That's pretty good for your Blu-ray. It's presented in high definition for the first time, featuring a scene-specific audio commentary track with Ole Sassoon, and it has the theatrical trailer, uh, the 35 millimeter one, not the one on the VHS. I'm gonna have to get this Blu-ray now. You're gonna have to send me this link. Oh, it's boy. worth it. it it's You're gonna really- make me spend more money, <laughs> like we we do this podcast for the fans, but between. Adam and everybody else. I'm buying awful comics. I'm buying DVDs for a bootleg movie. It's just hilarious. (laughs) My wife is like, why do you have all this stuff? I got a package from Adam last week of like a bunch of image comics from the 90s. And she's like, why is he sending you these things? I'm like, like, I have to read them. But she's like, (laughs) like, all right, I'll be watching The Bachelorette while you're sitting there reading these things. And I sat there and with the bachelorette in the background i'm reading death mate which adam and i are going to be reviewing we've actually you'll hear in the next episode of the podcast soon so didn't you just say that adam sending you comics is making you hate comics because he's sending you all the worst ones oh, he sent Wasn't me the worst <laughs> he said the worst he's making me hate comics it, if i showed you right now the backlog of comics that i actually want to read in comparison to the ones that I have to read for the podcast, you would be like, you just are taking money and setting it on fire. I have about a year's worth of comics to read that I am behind on. Well, you know, Adam's a good guy, so. He is a good dude, and I love him because he's he's one of the most generous people I've ever met, and he just, he does things out of his own goodness of his heart, and it's pretty funny, but it's like... I, I begged him. I'm like, you know, we were talking about <laughs> Gen 13 today. I'm like, please, can we at least read Gen 13? Something <laughs> other than like Death Mate and all this other stuff or whatever he's made me read. I don't even know what weird <laughs> stuff out there. Um, he's awesome. He, he sent me, after the last podcast we did together, he sent me a Banshee X-Men figure. In the toy yes, design. I remember him telling me about that. Because I cool. mentioned it. We may have to have you on one of our YouTube videos to talk about when we do our little action figure uh, throwback. Because we have, between the three of us, we have a lot of action figures. <laughs> you guys, like, way top me on that one. <laughs> oh, please. I, I don't know. I have a, I have a lot. But he he's, takes the cake, for sure. <laughs> um, he has a thousand VHS tapes, by the way. He, he told me that. Does he really? Yeah, I'm very oh, jealous. Oh my goodness, that's wild. That's very, very jealous. That's pretty amazing. Um, so we've talked a lot about, you know, things surrounding the movie, but we really haven't gone like scene by scene to tell the story of this movie. And I, you know, 
I guess I'll start because I have less knowledge than, than you, but okay. I took some notes, not a lot, not a lot of notes, but I took some notes and okay, good. you know, there, there's a few questions that I had that I'm, I'm trying to gain answers to. Um, I already asked about the, you know, guy who plays uh, Ben Grimm mm-hmm. is the best looking actor in the whole movie. And he's barely in the movie. Um, at times, um, Reed Richards comes off very creepy. Interesting. L- let me hear this. So, okay. So, again, this stems from the 60s version of the characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they, they portray Reed as obviously a super intelligent person. And you, and you get that right out of the gate from the first scene in the classroom when he kind of corrects the professor. And then, so after that scene, they go to his, I guess it's his lab with Victor Mm-hmm. And there's there's some sort of peculiar lightning storm that's going on. Yes. I the only significance of this particular storm is that it's what horribly scars Victor and to Reed's knowledge kills him. Yes. But I don't understand the significance of this otherwise. Like they they talk about one to connect with Colossus. Yes. Yes. And we never actually connect with Colossus in the whole movie, which is whatever, fine, okay. Um, but why was this, what was so special about this night and this whole thing? I don't understand that. It was, I think it was treated almost like, you know, Haley's Comet, where it comes around every few years. Uh, and, and Reed believed that it had some sort of power that he was trying to harness. Okay. So... It's a little you know, vague. It's a little, little. I, I, I feel like there was either stuff cut out of the movie or cut for time, but they mm-hmm. just co- they couldn't shoot it all. Whatever it may have been in the script to explain that, because it just kind of comes out of nowhere, like poof. Oh, we got to do this thing. Oh, this thing's gonna happen. Yeah. And there's like people on a hill, kind of watching it. <laughs> and I was under the impression that this was how they were gonna establish how they all got their powers. Yes, yes. I remember you talking about that last time you, you watched know. it. But yeah, it was just just Doom got scarred from it. Yeah. And, you know, and so Reed is super intelligent. He's super uh, remorseful that he killed his best friend because of this whole project. Mm-hmm. Because I guess their calculations were wrong. And, you know, if you know anything about Reed and Victor, they are the best of friends and the worst of enemies. And... They also are super strong-willed people where their opinion is always right. Depending on who it is, they're, they're both know-it-alls. And, and they, they nail that. They do. Like, they absolutely nail it. Like The way that they portrayed the two of them as best friends, but also fierce rivals because they're so both highly intelligent it's spot on. And I was really, really pleased by that. Um, the, the one note I will say, and, and I'm not someone to lob criticism at this movie. Cause uh, like I said, this is my favorite Marvel thing ever. I do wish at the end, there was a moment where the doom mask was off and you yeah. could see uh, Reed and Victor connecting again. Yeah. And, and you could see them connecting again as, as, as humans, not as like, you know, the man in the iron mask. Um, yeah. I, We'll, we'll, we'll progress through there. Yeah. There's, there's thoughts I had about that. Okay. Um, you know, I had already mentioned that I thought that Sue Storm as an adult was probably the worst written character in the movie. Just, they just don't give her enough to do. And they, they, they really paint her as very needy. And that hmm. bothered me a lot because I thought she could have been so much more powerful. And like one thing that I was, glad about and I'm got, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So basically I'm going to I'm going to go back a little bit and I'm just going to ramble because we're going to go on off book here. <laughs> I, I want to talk about this movie in detail. So after Victor dies, we flat we fast forward 10 years. And now um Reed and Ben are working in essentially the Baxter building mm-hmm. and they're 
no longer college students. They are, you know, scientists and they're, they're still looking for Colossus and they, they plan a, a space exploration to somehow connect with Colossus. Yes. And there's some sort of crystal or like space rock or something that's the key to connecting with Colossus. Yes. And they go, like like Ben and Reed are trying to find people to go with them on this expedition. And it just so happens that Johnny and Sue are the only people that know as much about this project as they do. Because you find out that uh, Sue's mom, who owns like some sort of, you know, boarding house or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like Reed lived there and has told the whole project to these kids who are now in their early twenties. Yeah. That's, that's, you've summed it up. Well, it's a, it's, it doesn't track great. So you're wondering why, why bring these two kids on a spaceship? Yeah. They, again, they talk about this in the audio commentary track. They ask Ole, why does that happen? And he says, well, they had to get superpowers, <laughs> which is the most economical answer. I mean, again, if you look at the source material, Stanley just had them go up on that spaceship. It was, it was like an age of uh, bold exploration. We were in the space age, and people thought that, you know, these were adventurers, and it was an adventure. And uh, I, I, I would have liked it as if, better if Johnny and Sue were Reed's lab assistants. Like yeah. they, they were actually working in the Baxter building for him as like interns or something that would sell a little bit more. It was almost, it was very shoehorned into the whole plot. In, okay. So I guess I, I don't, I don't a hundred percent agree just cause I think it's, it's just such a part of like the vernacular of the fantastic four. That they I, I get they, that. they just go up there, and I feel like in the 2005 movie they they tried to overexplain it, and they made Jessica Alba like you know whatever. They're all scientists, yeah. Yeah, and and you don't you just don't buy it with Jessica Alba's no. performance, unfortunately, no. Um, or Chris Evans' performance, he doesn't play very intelligent either. <laughs> uh, we're or Michael Chiklis's performance isn't great. Uh, so yeah, it's just like yeah. I guess I give it a pass. It's almost like this kind of, you know, a, a, like I keep saying, a Disney-fied version of the Stanley fair, comic. Fair enough. I, where I, it's like, what, why are Doc Brown and Marty McFly friends? Doc Brown's seven years old. Why is he hanging out with a 17-year-old? Like, what's he doing hanging out at his lab? If that was your son, you'd be like, dude, this don't is hang out with a 70-year-old. That's crazy. Yeah, that's But true. you buy it because it's just, you know, kid hanging out with a maniac scientist. Fair enough. Fair enough. No. Okay. Um, so now they have this crystal and the jeweler breaks into the lab. Yes. Which has like, you know, the the cliche, you know, LED lights. In the, well, it wasn't even LED back then. It was just, you know, like lights in the floor that would be alarm sensors. And the yes. jeweler knows yes. how to like tiptoe around it to get this crystal and swaps it out with a fake. Mm-hmm. You never see the crystal again. It's gone. <laughs> the real that's crystal your, that, is... That's your issue. <laughs> I like, gone. I like, how, I like how detailed you're getting into this. Gone. Um, I, I told you we were going to be doing this for four hours, so be ready. Uh, wait, hold. Doesn't he deliver it to Doom, or am I misremembering? No. he tr- Like, Doom wants to take it, and then Doom comes in to try to kill all the guys. Mm. But I don't know if Doom ever actually takes it. They don't show him take it. Okay. So I just it's just kind of like like Kaiser Soze gone. Okay. <laughs> um, so now they go into outer space, and they have this fake crystal. Yes. And the space shuttle somehow connects with Colossus. Yes. Without the crystal that they needed, mm-hmm. and it causes the spaceship to crash land, explode, whatever my perspective again i was watching this on my phone at this point we need to get you a blu-ray this is yeah i'm gonna have to get a blu-ray and rewatch it but like they crash land they survive yep. fine 
not a scratch on them. Fine. It's the Fantastic Four. They, they've established that many other times that like they come out unharmed, which fine. They, they were yeah. already, they were already changed because of the, the thing that happened in space. Great. I thought they landed on another planet. I thought they like, landed in the negative zone or something like that. Okay. They don't, they don't really say that they landed back on Earth. And they don't really even show it that well either. Hmm. So I thought they may have landed in the negative zone or, you know, the quantum realm or whatever. And I'm like, my first thought was like, gee, is the negative zone kind of like the Garden of Eden? Like, <laughs> it's like, they got trees, they got mountains, they got grass. Like, where are we? And, you know, then... Johnny has the sneeze. Yes. You know, the epic sneeze. Yeah. Sue is talking, but she's invisible. And we do, we find out she's invisible and they do this cute effect where she's kind of like half mm-hmm. there and half nothing. And I was good. It was fine. You know, Reed does his stretching of his arm by accident and they figure that out. But Ben doesn't change right away. Mm-hmm. And that I thought was really interesting. I really sunk my teeth in that. I'm like, like, why didn't he change? Like, what's what's the deal? And then all of a sudden, the military or whomever shows up, which we found out actually is is Doctor Doom's guys. Yes, come and collect them, right? And then as they're pulling up, you know, Ben Grimm is gone, and, and the thing is revealed. Yes, and you're like, what happened? Did he did he change while he slept? Like, how did that work? And it was is a little confusing. But I was like, all right, I'll I'll go with it. I'm I'm good here. I, I'm I'm good. And now we're in this, you know, essentially like an Arkham Asylum kind of place. And there's a doctor that's trying to, you know, draw blood from them and get information out of them. And he's really funny in the movie when he stabs himself with a needle. It was pretty mm-hmm. hilarious, you know. Um, I I loved that whole series of scenes and, and sequences, you know, especially when they're in the room together and Reed's like, why are they not letting me in? There? Like, I'm the smartest guy in the room. Why are they not letting me analyze the blood or see what happened? Like, what is going on? And then you yes. find out that they're in, you know, Doom's castle and they're prisoners there. Very, very interesting. I really enjoyed that whole part and how they escape and everything was very well done very clever i will say i think this script is is dynamite like this script just moves along it it has you know five main characters basically i mean every character gets a lot of screen time a lot of screen time and the jeweler and and alicia masters as well and it tells a, a succinct story pretty well better than better than the new the new stuff that came out that's true. I agree. Um, the The one thing that kind of bothered me is at first when Ben realizes that he's changed, mm-hmm. he's very, very angry at Reed. Like, obviously, notably angry. But he gets over it real quick. <laughs> okay, this is an issue for you. So he gets over it. Then he gets depressed again. Then he has that, you know, you know, lonely man sequence where he's like going yep. through the city. Dun, and, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, dun, you know, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. very incredible Hulk, Bruce Banner kind of yes. like going through the city. And um, that sequence, and they talk about it in the documentary, was, was shot as an afterthought. Of like, yes. it, you know, it's and it not, shows. Oh, it's yeah. Not, it's not very. It looks like you know they just walked into strangers on the uh, it's in, in Los Angeles and it's very shallow focus. It's you know it's 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 shot like very bokeh and you know yep. close close ups and you know clearly no lighting whatsoever. None. You know None. it's all yep. natural light. Just you know they open up the, the exposure on the camera as high as they could. Just like it could even be if he's grainy, doesn't matter. It'll look even more gritty. It'll be great. Yeah, whatever. And you yeah. Know, Whatever. It's fine. I get it. I totally understand it. Learning about it in the documentary made even more sense, and I'm, I'm cool with it. Fine. But after all that happens, so this is what thrusts him into finding the jeweler, yes. finding Alicia, and it was interesting how they tied that together, because again, like I said earlier, 
I did not know where this whole jeweler Alicia story was even going to go. Like <laughs> it's weird. Um, and the one thing that I want to say about all of the jeweler sequences in particular, every scene with the jeweler and, and, and all of his gang, it felt to me very much like the John Wesley ship, the flash series. It's lit like yes. that. It's yes. shot like that. The goons are very much like that That show. Everything about it felt like it was right out of that. That's why I thought it was like a made-for-TV movie almost. Well, particularly the, the pilot movie for The, for the Flash. Yeah. Has 100%. that bad guy who's, uh, who's uh, Pike. Yes. Who's living in like the underground lair. So yeah, I totally see what you're saying. Yeah. What you're saying there. Yes, that, that's, that's definitely... I mean, you know, and I think we talked about this too on the Generation X podcast. There were not that many comic book movies at this point. No. So they were all kind of pulling from the same source style. material. Yeah. Yeah, style. And, and they were kind of doing riffs on the same thing. Yeah. Like the way the, the, the purple lighting bleeds in through the windows. It's very, very of the time comic booky series type of lighting and shots, which I was totally good with. I'm like, okay, it's, it's, of that same style. Like they, they saw that style. Like, okay, we could do that. We could match that and make it feel like that. It was, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And also like the, you know, another big reference point for all these things was the sixties Batman show. And they even do the scene when thing beats up the henchman and like yeah. the camera, you know, the, they do like the spin dissolve. Yeah. And then he's, you know, I hated that. <laughs> I hated the, that was probably the thing I hated the most. Yes. Like, like all these thugs gathered around the thing. I wanted so badly to see him beat the snot out of all of those guys, and they yeah. do that. Oh, they're all down. Like, well, man. they had eighteen. They had, they had eighteen days, Michael. What, what do you expect from? I didn't know that when I grab a whole scene. I didn't know that at the time. I found that after. It's like, all right, now I get it. But I well, you, like, you had mentioned this uh, earlier, that this feels like one of those TV movies at the time. If this aired on a Sunday morning on WWOR9 with, like, My Secret Identity and, you know, you'd, you'd think this is great. I mean, yeah. this is that quality. Yeah, 100%. Of, of movie. So, yeah, they absolutely. Didn't have, they didn't have the Batman budget or the Dick Tracy no. budget or the Rocketeer budget. No. Or the Darkman budget, which was... Ugh, don't bring up Darkman, please. <laughs> I just want to put that behind me. Like, put that in, in the, the rearview mirror, please. Oh. Can I tell you, after I listen to your podcast, I put the uh, trilogy on my uh, Amazon wish list, so hopefully someone buys it for me. Do, do, you, guys, <sighs> do you guys hate me? Because then you're going to maybe watch part two and part three because, you know, we're going to get to that point, I'm sure. <laughs> oh. first, first two, you can do Blank Man. Oh, please. Blank Man Your and Meteor Man. Blank That's man. all I want to do is Blank Man and Meteor Man. I just want to do it so bad. <laughs> um, so, okay. Now, here's the question that I had. When the thing finds out that Alicia is there, it was, again, a blink and you miss it moment, but a Thing turns back into Ben Grimm. Yes. And it was very confusing because as we mentioned, thing is smaller than Ben and like mm -hmm. the way they kind of like, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? It's like, uh, they, you know, they layered the film and like digitally transmissioned it, uh, tr transitioned it through each other. And, you know, he yeah. grew like whatever. And then he runs off and he's basically naked in the city almost. Mm -hmm. um, so I did not dislike it. I was just confused until the next scene later. And the next scene later, when, when Ben Grimm returns to the Baxter building and he sees Sue and Johnny and Reed and they figure out how their powers manifested, I did one of these. <gasps> wow, that was brilliant. I really was like, Holy crow, that makes a lot of sense, and I dig it. Please explain to the audience how they figure out what their powers mean and how they got them. So Reed figures out that Colossus takes their 
greatest weaknesses and makes them their greatest strengths. So Johnny, who is a hothead and is quick to anger, he becomes the human torch. Sue, who is, who is shy and is, and is always, and that's how she, he figures it out. Cause Sue is saying, Oh, I'm always so shy around you. Why is yeah. that? By the way, I think Rebecca Stab is great in this movie. <laughs> and I think she looks like she's adorable in the movie. She really is beautiful. Isn't. She's really beautiful. She's really adorable. She's, she's very likable. I just think that they didn't give her a lot of work, lot to work with. She, she feels to, I mean, if you look at the comic books, the, the original Kirby comic, she looks like she stepped off the pages. I mean, of oh, all hair, of them. Yeah, her, her hair, the costume. Yeah. It's literally. And she, and she loves Reed, and I always wanted to be Reed. So, you know, worked Fair for enough. me as a kid. Anyway, so, so Reed figures out the Colossus takes their greatest weaknesses and makes it their greatest strengths. And I think that is Alex Hyde White's best scene in the movie. He just sells it. Sells it. it. Absolutely, yeah. So well, Ah, it's so good. It's so good. It really is good. And that was part two of our really exciting, fun, Fantastic Four coverage for the Roger Corman Fantastic Four film. Stay tuned next week for part three, where we really get into some interesting stuff, maybe talk a little bit about Long Island, and have some fun along the way. As always, don't forget to keep your books bagged and boarded. of the Retro Network.